Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Midtown High School senior, Aron Sonat Joshi, has won the Georgia Poet Laureate's Teen Prize. Later this hour, we'll hear about his poem, The Stargazer, and why he believes that Classical languages are relevant and lively. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today features the reggae rock band Caius Embrace. First, may first have encountered Jasmine Guy from her role as Whitley Gilbert in A Different World or her role as Dina. In Spike Lee's 1988 film School Days, the award-winning actress has worn many hats in the creative world, from directing to writing to serious dance. Her new film, The Ladymakers, is out now on Amazon Prime, Jasmine Guy joins me now via Zoom. Jasmine, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I have missed you. Likewise. So let's reminisce a bit and then let's talk about the present. Dance has been a huge part of your professional journey you began to study at a young age. You took dance at Spelman College Dance School when you were 12. And then you went on to study at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater School when you were only 17. How did dance give you confidence to pursue other creative career paths? Well, there were a a few more schools in there. I went to the Ruth Mitchell School of Dance here in Atlanta. I went to Atlanta Ballet. And I also went to Northside um, School of Performing Arts. And that was when I realized, you know, I could sing and I could act and I could be in musical theater as well as dance. So I was kind of double majoring at Northside. When I got to New York on that scholarship to study with Avenelli School, I already knew I could do those other things. But the thing about dance, maybe because it's with our bodies, you only have a window of time to do it. So I said, I'm just going to focus on my dance. But that gave me the discipline, the fearlessness, the courage to go into the other areas later in my life. I always say that's my first language. Oh, beautiful. And one of the first things that struck me about Alvin Ailey dancers and continues to astonish me is the degree to which they are outstanding actors. Yes. 
Alvin Ailey's original pieces had a lot of characters in them. It wasn't just about doing this step to this music. They were like Masakela Langage and Blue Sweet, of course, Revelations. They're mm. representing something. And you have to understand what that is, you know? In every piece that he did, there was a story behind it. And that fed my need to dramatize or to characterize. I cannot just move aimlessly. It always had a purpose. And I saw that purpose in Alvin Ailey's work. And there you were with your first language and also... Interpreting a narrative. Let's go back to 1987 when A Different World was released and you starred as Whitley Gilbert, so popular. You were this Southern Belle attending a fictional historical Black institution. How did it feel to be part of a show that was tackling real-life experiences of Black students during that era, albeit within a comic framework. Yes, and the confines of network TV. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I hear you. Um, well, the first season, Kadeem and I were only hired for seven episodes, so... Really, by episode five or six, we were looking at each other like, you think we're going back home? Home for me at that time was New York. Are we going to stay? It was really the second season that gelled for me because coming from the East Coast, you know, I was born in Boston and I lived in New York and then I lived in Atlanta and grew up and graduated. But in the West, they had no ideas of Black colleges. And they basically wrote a show for any college student without the specificities of going to a Black college. Why is that important? Why is that necessary? It's in the minutia. Like Debbie Allen came on to exec produce A Different World on the second season. She walked on the pit set where the pit was where we ate. She said, where's the hot sauce? <laughs> Great. You know, they had salt and pepper and ketchup and mustard. And she was like, what is this? This does not look like, you know, a Black college campus. And also the genius of building this spinoff, because it's a spinoff of the Cosby show, the genius of putting it on a black college campus gave the HBCUs a voice that they never had before. Even though we were going through our antics and our relationships and I don't know, it was kind of a genius move by oh, somebody yeah. who understood the power of TV. At the time, I did not. I was happy to have a job. So I was not... I first of all, I grew up across the street from Morehouse, so I didn't know that it was such a mystery. So I'm just saying, I just, I'm just happy I have a job, you know, and pay off my Amex, pay off my <laughs> ex boyfriend and my ex roommate. Well, speaking of HBCUs and living across from Morehouse. Your father was a professor of philosophy and religion at Morehouse College for over 30 years, I believe. How authentic was the portrayal of a different world to that of a real-life HBCU once Debbie Allen arrived and you were able to tweak the input to the show? Well, second season after Debbie got on to A Different World as our producer and director, I didn't have any issues, but that first season, were, it was rough for me. First of all, I told you my, my job was already on the line. You know, I didn't have the full season. And um, at the table read, I had to say, I know I'm not in this scene. And 
I know it could be fired in two weeks. I mean, basically, but there is no way in hell that these kids would call their professors by their first name. Oh, yeah. Oh. Right? Yeah. And they were just calling each other, I'm calling the, uh, we had Roscoe Lee Brown and we had major actors as oh, these yeah. professors, you know. And I said, I got, I have to say something. You know, I could not imagine any of my father's students calling him Bill. No. <laughs> or you calling him Bill. No, I don't call him Bill. <laughs> and my friends call him Reverend Guy. So it's like, even though he's tried to say, you know, you could come. You, my friends are like, there's no way in hell I'm calling your daddy Bill. You know, he's Reverend Guy. So it was Jay, my mom, and Reverend Guy. They called my mom by her first name, but they would not call him by that. So to see that in the script like that, yeah, I said, I have to say something. I can't sit up here. I don't care where everybody's from because we filmed in L.A. I was at the time in New York, but a lot of people were not from L.A., except for the writers. It's like, even when, when my daughter went to preschool out there and they said, you don't have to call me ma'am. And you don't have to, call. I said, no, she needs to call you ma'am. You are not her peer. She's four years old. What's wrong with y'all? <laughs> you just trying to stay young forever. You know, they want to be cool and hip forever. It's like, no, she needs to call you Miss something. You were truly in a different world by the time. I was in a different world. Let's be very clear. Yes. And I had no idea that show would last for six years, you know, so I had to make an adjustment, but it wasn't until I had my kid that I realized the cultural difference. Oh, yeah. Well, when we spoke a few years ago about your role on the BET series, The Quad, you quipped, this is my third fictitious HBCU, and I have three fictitious degrees to go with these schools. I have that on tape, Jasmine. I love it. Tape. Listen to me. I have that recorded. <laughs> so here, I was wondering, given some of the more antiquated aspects of a different world, how do you think young audiences would respond to it today? You know, Lois, people that are so young, they're babies, you know, they are watching the show. Their parents are making them watch it, and then they get into it. One little girl, she was 10 years old. It was like a couple of months ago. And she said, I watched all the seasons of a different world, and I watched your character, <laughs> and I can do you. And I said, okay, let me see. She did Whitley scenes as Whitley. And I didn't even remember them. You know what I mean? Her memory and her ability to adapt to the accent and everything. Yeah, it's been very moving to see these little babies watch a different world. Because at that time, I didn't know it would be a show that would resonate 30 years from now. You know what I mean? I didn't know that. And it, that has been so amazing to me just to be a part of it and to know, remember what it took to get there, but also the genius behind it. I think Cosby had that genius. Mm. I'm sorry that he had other problems, but he had that, that vision was clear because it is the only show about black colleges. I mean, they've been done since, but not, and, and to say, I'll take the fame of my show and spin it off in this way, you know. It was groundbreaking and clearly established you firmly in popular culture. 
If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the award-winning actor Jasmine Guy. Jasmine, I was surprised to read that in your new film, The Lady Makers, that this was your first leading role in a feature film. Your character portrayals have been so rich. I think of you as a leading role actor. Of course, I also think of your memorable stage performances. Ooh, I will never forget. Nobody's seen but you. (laughs) But I think my best work has been in theater. But, you know, that's okay. Hey, the Tuskegee Experiment? Yes, Miss Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm sorry, Miss Evans. Yes, it was awesome. And the oh my God. that we had, you know, that was an ensemble piece that, you know, but, you know, you can't have the same numbers. But, I, yeah. But I know that I did it, and you know that I did it, so. Well, I know that you've done many, and I think that's why it surprised me to see in the prep material that this is your first role as a lead actor. Well, you know, I don't I don't know where that came from because I've never felt like I wasn't prominent. You know, I really didn't look at supporting or my number on the I don't I don't look at that. But mm-hmm. when I was on the red carpet in, in Atlanta here when we did the premiere for the Lady Makers, they said, "Yes. Is this your first feature film?" And I just said, no, this is the first film that I'm featured in. This is not my first feature film. Hardly. But it's different having the onus. I I, I would say that I do feel an onus that I don't have in other projects because it's not all on me. And I don't feel this film is all on me, but probably promotionally. It is, but definitely not on, on screen. It is an ensemble piece. It is a multi-generational cast. And it was just, everybody had to pull their weight. And if I was in a scene with them, we were like, okay, this is where we're going with this. You know, we're making a movie. Mm. Would you talk about your character? Emma. Emma is a domestic in Indianola, Mississippi. She has worked for this Jewish family for, I want to say, 20 to 30 years. Okay. When she met these women, there's a Jewish community in Mississippi. I didn't know that. I was ignorant, but I was like, there are Jews in Mississippi, you know? Not many, but I think... Not many, and God bless you, and I hope you survive, because, oh, my God. (laughs) So this little girl goes to the um, water fountain, and it doesn't work. The colored one doesn't work. She goes to the white one, and a white man snatches her up, you know, and holds her mother back. And another white lady comes up and intervenes and gets her release. And that was the first time she had seen a kind white person. She said, what kind of white lady is that? And she was a part of this Jewish community in Indianola, Mississippi. And I keep saying that because it's based on a true story. Because out of my ignorance, I I didn't even know that. I didn't know there was a Jewish community in Mississippi, you know, in the 40s. So... She grows up and later becomes this family's maid, you know, domestic. Then years later, now the ladies are um, their sisters and family members or whatever, and they become behoven to this oath of before we leave, we must leave everything we know and, and have experienced in our 70, 80 years, you know, to someone else. We can't leave here taking that with us. So they get these three hood rats from Atlanta. 
One's up for prostitution, one's up for child abuse, the other one's up for selling drugs, and they're going to jail. And they convinced the Atlanta judge to let us have them, you know, for two or three months. And we'll make ladies out of them. So those three women are the lady makers. But Emma has a strong, pervasive impact on the action. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of like the warden because I, I don't trust these little girls, you know, and I know they're going to take advantage of my employers. And then I have a very deep relationship with Potato, who is on the grounds. I love that it's showing women, all of us, interacting in a different way. None of the relationships are romantic, but they're all intimate and they're all deep. And sometimes we're over-sexualizing relationships because that's not the only relationship we can have. And it may not even be the most important. And I think my relationship with Potato and my relationship with these women is my family. Yes. Most, if not all of this movie, appeared to have been filmed in Atlanta. Having grown up in Atlanta, and you also taught at Spelman, Jasmine, what's it like for you to see the film industry grow and evolve here in Georgia? I, I, I love it, but I never saw it. I didn't see it. First of all, I left in 1979. So I missed the musical, you know, Elaine Babyface period. Some of those kids are like 15 years younger than me. <sighs> they may know what school I went to, but it wasn't like we were peers. And then coming back here after my divorce, I thought I'd be here for six months because <laughs> I didn't know there was any work here. I'm going by what was going on, you know, when I was 17, 79. And I actually saw this industry rise and I got to work with a lot of the talent here in Atlanta, which was so inspiring, I have to say. I call them my baby divas, so inspiring. You know, all the the plays I directed, the, the opera I did, you know, about Martin Luther King and working with opera singers and gospel singers and so inspiring. And I said, well, I, I can stay here because I really thought I'd have to leave just because of work. And now that it's even beyond what I would imagine with the tax credits and with the acceptance of the community, you know, because we probably live in Atlanta, but we're not filming in Atlanta. I was out in Hogansville and when I did Vampire Diaries, I can't even tell you where I was. I know it was outside <laughs> of where I used to go, you know, we're using the whole state and that the state is supporting it is very important because it is an industry that's not only lucrative, but these babies need somewhere to go. And everybody can't be an actor or a singer or whatever, but you can be a sound engineer, you can be a gaffer. You, there are hundreds of jobs in this industry that we can bring to these babies. So I'm excited that colleges in this area have also, they have film schools now, they have ways of teaching the children how to do, like if you want to do a rec, I don't know the terminology, like engineers in a music studio, sound, editorials. I'm very excited to be here now. I'm glad I, I did go, I didn't go back to LA and New York because I was, I was never a part of L.A. I just worked there, you know, but I'm a part of Atlanta. Atlanta raised me. Oh, Jasmine, you are integral to Atlanta. Now, you are also in the Amazon Prime comedy TV series Harlem, which was renewed for second season. 
you play Patricia, the mother of Quinn, and Patricia is not happy with Quinn's choices in life, constantly pushing her to settle down with someone and change career paths. In real life, I know you have a very close relationship with your daughter, Imani. Was it challenging for you to portray this vastly different mother character? It really was. I mean, first of all, I know how to be mean and I know how to be funny, but I said to Grace Byers, who's playing Quinn, my daughter, fortunately, she's from the Cayman Islands. We would get offset and I would talk like this and she would have an accent. And then we get on camera and I'm talking <laughs> like this to her and she's talking American. I said, oh my gosh, you can't let me go out there wrong. If you hear anything, that's not true. But the other thing was how mean I was. She said, oh, no, no, that's a career band mother. That's what she would tell oh. me. It's not harsh to her like it was harsh to me. I said, if I said this to Imani, I would destroy her. Oh. But they have a different tolerance. And the women are, the daughters are treated differently. Like the boys are spoiled and the girls are they, they get the discipline. Oh, not fair. I say, you leave one job before you find another job? Like, how stupid is that? You know? But I couldn't say that to Imani like that. I have to find, like, okay, so let's let's walk through this. I don't know. I love the part, though. It's so much, it's so much fun. So much fun and being mean and make-believe. Because I could never get away with this. In, in real life, you know what I mean? But, and I do love her. And, I, and that I know comes through because even if I'm being harsh, I can't, I can't help but love my kid, you know? Hmm. Now, are you filming season two of Harlem at the moment? Yes. In fact, I'm going to New York next week to do the last episode. So, the whole season will be done after next week. And I also have a scene with Megan Good because most of my scenes are with Grace. And, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's in it as well in this series. Yeah. Yeah. I love this show. They better they better pick it up next year. Really? What's not to love about Harlem? And speaking of Harlem, I remember you're telling me about a one-woman show that you had written and really wanted to perform everywhere, a show about the Harlem Renaissance. What became of it? Are you doing your research or something? No, stay in my memory. Listen, don't ask me where I left my phone or my purse or, or you know, my glasses. But I remember these things you tell me. Remember, you made me cry, too. I don't know what you asked me, but I started crying. <laughs> oh, anyway. Okay, so the show you're talking about is called Raising Cain. It's about the Jane Toomer uh, book, Cain. The first act is all about bringing people up to speed about the Harlem Renaissance. So, yes, I did that. Yes, I did it all over the country, and it was fabulous with a jazz trio. Giving you history, but also original music, past music. I started out as a narrator for the piece. Like, they needed an actor to read the um, copy, and then they would do the music, the trio, because it's about the music. And then they were like, well, she can sing, so why does she sing when she can dance? So before I knew it, I was like narrating, dancing in between. I loved doing it. It was like a collage. It was like a Romare beard and piece to me. Oh, I just loved doing it. I, I would love to do it again, but they only started hiring the show during February. Oh, the 28-day window. For yeah, and with, with schools, you have to do it a year to a year and a half ahead of time. Like, 
if I was going to perform at Howard, I'd have to set it down now. So I'm I'm blocking myself out for February and March every year for five years. Oh, wow. And I, I couldn't afford to do it anymore. If they had us come at other times during the year, it wouldn't be in the middle of television shows. You know, I was doing Vampire Diaries at the time and other things and but I love doing that show. Avery Sharp Trio, so we had a bass, percussionist, and a violinist. Oh my God, the music was awesome. But thank you for remembering that because I do love that piece and I hope to do it again. Well, I hope you'll do it here. Yeah, this guy. I need to do some sit-ups is what I need to do. <laughs> Jasmine, this has been such a joy. Thank you for all the time you gave me, and congratulations on the Ladymakers. Thank you, Lois. It's always good to talk to you. And you know, you are one of the few people in Atlanta that I talk to that actually comes to the shows, and I appreciate that. I always see you at the theater. Actor Jasmine Guy, her new film, The Ladymakers, is out now on Amazon Prime. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from this year's winner of the Georgia Poet Laureate's Teen Prize, Midtown High School senior Aran Sonat Joshi. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The renowned poet Rita Dove has said poetry is language at its most distilled and most powerful. Georgia poet Chelsea Rathburn and the Georgia Council for the Arts recently announced the winner and finalists for this year's ninth annual Poet Laureate Prize awarded to a Georgia high school student for an original poem. The winner of that distinction is Atlanta's Midtown High School senior, Aaron Sonajoshi. He joins me now via Zoom to talk more about his award-winning poem, The Stargazer. Aaron, welcome to City Lights. Um, hi, thank you for having me. When did you first become interested in writing poetry? Um, well, I've always been interested in writing, but until the beginning of the pandemic, I was mainly a fiction and journalism person, but... Starting uh, when everything went virtual, I had a lot of free time on my hands, and because I was inside, just a lot of time to think. And I decided that I wanted to try something new, put some of those thoughts into words in a different form. So I really started experimenting with poetry properly then. Mm. Who are some poets and fiction writers who inspire your own literary work? Well, I read pretty a pretty diverse uh, base of things. Pretty recently, I was reading some a poetry collection by Clint Smith, and uh, that was pretty cool. 
Um, I actually read a lot of Roman poetry for, I'm a big student in like uh, Latin, Greek, that kind of thing. So it's been kind of interesting to weave that into some of my poems. And then as far as fiction writers, I mean, there's a lot pretty recently. So it's been on my mind. I was reading The Road by Cormac McCarthy oh, and yes. A Little Life, both fantastic books. I know you're interested in classics. That Roman poetry, do you read it in Latin? I mean, if I'm trying to just get into the story, read I'll read it in English, but sometimes it's fun to try translating it. I feel like you get a better connection with the work since translators obviously put some of their own thoughts into it. And if I'm doing the translation myself, then I can translate it the way that I believe the poet intended it to be hmm. read, which is a little more interesting of a read that way. Yeah. I read you are a Lincoln-Douglas debater and an editor for your school student newspaper, The Southerner. How have those skill sets, debating and journalism, helped you become a better writer? Both debate and journalism uh, require writing, and it's a different style of writing, but there's a lot of crossover, I feel, in the way that I think creative writers, journalists, debaters all kind of think about things. I mean, they're all different ways of processing the information that we get in the world that we see around us and making it more accessible to people. In debate, you're presenting that as an argument. In journalism, as a reported story. And creative writing has many genres. But I think functionally, it comes down to a very similar thought process and idea. Hmm. How did you react to hearing that you won this year's Poet Laureate Prize. Um, I was really surprised. Actually, I didn't see the email at first. It went to my spam folder, but my parents... Oh, no. Well, you could write a poem about that. Yeah, it was kind of surprising because I wasn't sure when it was coming out. Then I just got a text from my parents who did get the email. And it was pretty surprising because, I mean, this was not the poem that I was originally going to submit to the competition. I was going to submit one of my earlier works and then a little bit before the competition, like I think either the day of or two days before, I decided that I didn't really feel like that was the poem that truly represented me at the time, but I had been thinking about some different stuff and I thought that might be interesting. So I compiled that into this poem and sent it out. So because it was a little bit last minute, I didn't really think I had much of a chance, but I guess I did. My goodness. Would you read your poem, The Stargazer? Um, yeah, of course. Glow-in-the-dark stars gleam with soft green radiance, accepting, absorbing the light of day until they shine. On sleepless nights, I trace shapes among the plastic lights, memorizing every star. I imagine that I am lying in a field of grass under the hot, sticky air and finding constellations in the vaulted sky. My teacher says that stars are made of flaming gas, but I prefer my grandmother's explanation. She tells me that stars are the souls of our ancestors, so ancient they can only watch from afar. And she holds me with hands that are now thin and bony and covered with papery skin, but still strong. The pavement is hard against my back and the cool air is sharp, hostile. It whispers through the streets and I am exposed. I lift my hand towards the sky, trying to find the shapes. These are not the stars and they dance just out of reach, flitting away like silvery fish just beneath the surface of a dark river. What happened to glow-in-the-dark stars and constellations and dreams of warm summer nights? When did the stars go so far away? Mm. I especially admire the stanza. My teacher says that stars are made of flaming gas, but I prefer my grandmother's explanation. I just love your description of your grandmother saying that stars are the souls of your ancestors, so ancient they can only watch from afar. When did she tell you that? My grandmother was a big inspiration for this poem. She was the one who first bought the glow-in-the-dark stars that ended up on my ceiling. And I don't exactly remember when I heard this, but it's just a line that always kind of stuck with me. It was sometime when I was pretty young, might have even been before I started school. But, I mean, I've always been interested in the stars. And, I mean, we're in 
not super religious, but we're a Hindu family, and I mean, the stars and astrology are all very important to our culture. And my grandmother is uh, pretty religious. So. And what a poetic way she expressed that definition of the stars. The glow-in-the-dark stars that children often have on their bedroom ceilings you wrote about. Is there added symbolism in the transition from your looking at those stars on your bedroom ceiling and then contemplating the constellations? I think there is. I mean, I had stars on my bedroom ceiling. Like I mentioned, my grandmother's actually the one who bought them. But I think it's kind of interesting that uh, when children are sleeping, the parents or someone else tries to, like, they try to almost recreate the night sky because, I mean, even though they're not inside, it's, I don't know, I guess maybe people feel more at home or more comfortable, especially children, if they're surrounded by something natural. You mentioned enjoying Roman poetry, and I saw that you are passionate about the classics, studying Latin, as well as Greek and Sanskrit. What is it that draws you to ancient languages, Ara? I mean, I started Latin first, and that was back in elementary school after a family friend just happened to mention that my brother and I might like it. And I've just been sticking with that ever since. I want to major in classics in college, I think, at least. And I get the question all the time, like, why? Why would you uh, major in something that, well, essentially studies something 2,000 years old? Like, why not do something more applicable to the modern day? But I feel like we have a lot to learn from the past because it's fascinating that some things are so different. Like, obviously, technology, modern technology, modern science, modern languages didn't exist then. But some of the things that happen in these stories are so relatable to present experiences I just love the way that we can compare the differences and, and notice the similarities at the same time. Midtown High School senior Aran Sonat Joshi. He is the winner of this year's Georgia Poet Laureate Teen Prize. You can read his poem, The Stargazer, on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, our series highlighting local musicians. Speaking of music, today features the reggae rock band Caius Embrace. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Alex J, AKA Papi Guapo. I am the lead singer for Kaya's Embrace. I play the melodica, which is like a combination of the keyboard and the harmonica. And if I had to describe the style of music that Kaya's Embrace makes, I would say it's alternative reggae rock. My name's Cody McNeil. I'm the lead guitarist of Kaya's Embrace. And when I'm not playing guitar, I also play ukulele and bass. pair of idle hands sitting in your lap pick up that slack don't hold back chase your dreams follow the path see mama cut a case and dip soon as i turn 18 then drama shortly followed and i started to hate things then god blessed me with the sweetest sound that i had ever heard pen and paper in my hand so i started writing words suddenly not suddenly the block came out from under me most may have found this troubling but i found it quite lovely so down the rabbit hole i go my soul continues wandering marching on like soldiers through the boulders they keep hurtling that's are always creeping in without a rhyme or reasoning negativity circles me the vibes i seek with it so my journey in music actually started with poetry when i was younger i want to say maybe only 10 or 12 years old 
uh, maybe even a little earlier I liked to write little poems little rhymes they didn't always even rhyme but writing was always just a form of expression for me especially when I was feeling really upset or dealing with something I, it just felt like a good escape and a great way for me to get my emotions out and eventually that led to more of a hip-hop path I got really into freestyling and rapping and, and rhyming and that nature and I kind of considered myself a lyricist over a rapper because I was really really big on storytelling and incorporating just different experiences into my writing and then eventually when we started Kai's Embrace I decided I would start singing and that's where we're at now. I'd have to say what motivates me most is uh, just the connection that uh, we can make with people when we're playing our songs and seeing their faces sing along and dance and move to our music. That's really just such a big impact on me and what keeps me going. Let's go! Atlanta is without a doubt my favorite city in the world. I've been blessed to live a few different places, but Atlanta is just unlike any other city I've ever experienced. We're a cultural melting pot. You can find just about any nationality here in this great city. And I just love that it's represented all the way from our cuisine to our art to the music that comes out of this town. And it's just incredible to be a part of that community and to be considered an artist contributing to that scene. We chose to send the song Motions because I feel like it just really explains that day-to-day -day grind you know you might find yourself in a rut almost no escape in sight and you're just you know going through the motions and I feel like it's very relatable to a lot of people out there and we just want to remind people to keep their head up high and you know things do get better So we have quite a few shows coming up. Uh, you can catch us touring through the Southeast starting late September of 2022 all the way through next year, 2023. Uh, mainly Florida, Tennessee, the Carolinas, and a few other places. And you can certainly check out the dates and where we're going to be playing on any of our socials, Kaya's Embrace. And then we have a new song in the works called No Fear, which we don't have a definitive date when it will be released but it's in the works and we're really excited about it so catch no fear coming soon singer alex j and guitarist cody mcneil from the reggae rock band caius embrace more information about the band, as well as our series, Speaking of Music, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, the newly established Ruth Foundation for the Arts just announced their inaugural round of grants to 78 arts organizations across the U.S. 
One of those is the Georgia Regional Arts Service Organization Alternate Roots. The 44-year-old progressive arts organization partners with organizers supporting equity and social justice and provides professional and project development assistance through financial support, consultations, and training. Alternate Roots was awarded $10,000 and is not confined to a particular field or type of work. The organization serves 15 southern states from Alabama and Texas to Maryland and Washington, D.C., You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Monday at 11 a.m., director Forrest Attaway and executive producer Michelle Neal tell us about August Osage County on stage now at Dunwoody's Stage Door Theater. City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us to the Queen's Ball, the Bridgerton-themed immersive experience at Pullman Yards. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.